Welcome to the 149th episode of Reverse Rep Radio. I'm Andy Ryan. And I'm Toby Chad. It's 12 years to the day since Shahid Afridi, out of either hunger, boredom, or perhaps cunning, bit the ball during an ODI in Perth. Welcome to the podcast that's always preferred to wait until tea. Do you Have you ever bit, bit a cricket ball? Do you know what it tastes like? I suppose just a bit kind of corky, slightly earthy. I Not only have I never bitten one, I don't think I've ever felt even the instinct, Inclined. the curiosity. No, it's never never been a moment. I mean, aside from anything, it's pretty gross after, you know, any serious passage particularly of in play. This, particularly in this COVID era. Although Quite. you'd want one after a serious passage of play that had been kind of worn in a little bit. You'd want the softer, the softer approach. Anyway, you know next time we'll do the you know we'll experiment feature on how to on how to cook a how to cook a cricket ball and make it most most edible um but in this episode of reverse web radio what are we going to be talking about we are going to be talking about the um the county season uh coming up as we i was about to say as we kick into the english summer it is of course the first of february as we as we record this but you've got to have something to look forward to um we're going to be talking about darts um more on that later and we're going to be reviewing um i think what's probably already our our book of the year spoiler alert which is um who only cricket know by david woodhouse his book on the 1953-54 um england tour of the of the west indies so andy the uh, county cricket fixture list has been released so it has been released. It was much delayed and there was considerable grumbling on cricket Twitter about this. I think some of this was because there were a few decisions to make around the scheduling and around particularly this issue of whether Yorkshire would remain in the first division given the issues they've mm. had there. Mm. On balance, I think the, the fixture list is a modest improvement. There's a decent amount of county championship cricket that will be played on weekends, which is always good for those of us who... Uh, much as we'd to like it. to well exactly and much as i would like to just take you know endless days off to watch cricket can't, can't quite pull that off there's also a little bit more in the middle of the season so this has been a key part of the post ashes debate which is you know you can't just yep. keep playing cricket in april and may it's not good preparation um the hope is very much that this is just the start because the ecs ecb have talked about a reset in their approach to red ball cricket hopefully this is just the beginning um, but I think it's it's a decent start, and by my own very selfish metric, I reckon this will allow me to get to a few more games. So I will give it a, a tentative thumbs up. So when when is the and this is completely my ignorance, but when is the fixture list usually um, published? Because this seems early in the you know early enough in the year to do it at the end of January. Is it is it usually the well, end of the previous year? It's it's a really Boxing interesting day. one in that you know it's not as if any of us have to be doing tons of planning, do we, for this? No. You know, most of these games as we know don't don't sell out. But I think it was proof of how much the release of the list in the middle of the bleak winter yep. is really important for lifting spirits. And people yeah. were there in December moaning about it not being there because they were thinking I want to I be plotting to my day to. at Old Trafford. Yep. Exactly. Yep. It's miserable. It's grim. You know. Um, so you, I think you're, you're quite right. It's a delay that probably hasn't actually caused people much inconvenience, but has caused an irritation because it's it's a ch- chance to start dreaming, get, get the map out. And it is interesting that so soon after the Ashes, which obviously is the catalyst for this idea of the ECB re-looking at the Red Bull strategy, um, that that's immediately filtering down to the way that people are seeing 
kind of county county cricket because mm. so often you know there's a failure at test level and then it takes years and years and reviews and panels and all sorts and then finally it's kind of oh let's bring in the hundred that's going to solve it or you know not suggesting that that was the idea to solve solve england's test cricket woes but to have that really immediate sense mm-hmm. of okay we need to do something right now let's yeah. you know actually look back at the county game straight away from what you're saying it seems like the ecb is taking this seriously on I, that I, I on think that it- level at least in some way I think so. I think it's tinkering rather than a, a real reform at this stage. But I think tinkering, as I said, both with more games at weekends, a little bit in the actual summer. I mean, we are actually going to mm. get some county championship cricket in June and July. You know, as, as someone who has sat uh, watching county cricket in um, in early April, um, it can be a rather, you know, it can, it can be a, an act of endurance as much it as It becomes pleasure, a self-fulfilling so. prophecy that if you're going to put games on in April, in the middle of the week, that all you're going to get is diehards who are willing to mm. see in Anorax watching you know watching yeah. games in in the rain you're not going to build the audience for, for for county cricket by doing that now as you were saying I mean the ashes that we have been full-on into the post-mortem but while the men's ashes has been in the, the sort of depressing what next stage uh, the women's ashes has been an uplifting experience all around yeah so I kind of fell out fell out of love with cricket I have to say a bit about after the men's ashes um not because England got thrashed so much I mean I'm definitely a little bit happier when my wife will testify I'm a little bit happier when England win but fundamentally that's not the be all and end all or for me what really depressed me was the fact that it was so entirely one-sided that all of that kind of drama and suspense that you that we love about test cricket was completely missing and even without you know um suspenseful endings there was even no ebb and flow it was just all australia there was kind of no in many ways no point to the series um so for that reason it was a real delight to be able to sit at the weekend and listen to the entirety of the final two sessions of the um of the women's ashes test in in canberra i managed to kind of clear well it was a sunday afternoon who am i kidding when i say i clear my diary i had nothing in my diary on a sunday afternoon and i was able just to just to sit and listen to the entire thing and it was yeah a great way to i suppose fall back in love with with cricket all the way through from um meg lanning's decision to set that declaration a declaration setting you know england 250 odd to win it would have been a record run chase if they'd got there she could have been quite confident that they were you know that australia were going to take take the wickets however Meg Lanning was in a position where she knew that if she drew that match, she only had to draw it in order to win the Ashes because Australia ahead, you know, in terms of the aggregate, you know, points that they get out of the one days and 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 twenty twenties. Um, so she could have carried on batting, ensured the draw, and gone from there. But instead, she decided that she wanted to set things up a bit more interestingly. And interesting, it certainly was by you know England. Um, really you know it looked like an unlikely victory they batted their way very very close to it then they lost a whole lot of wickets almost lost it and then they snatched the the the, the draw at the very um at the very end it was a kind of amazing advert for what test cricket um can be and it you know it spoke to the quality of the of the teams but also the kind of quality of the approach from from Meg Lanning in that in that um declaration but then from the England team to actually go after that total and not just try and bat out the draw as well it seems to me the scheduling has worked really well on this occasion because i think you are not the only fan who has felt that this has been a bit of a redemption after Mm. an actual pretty grim period um and actually to have this straight after when a lot of fans i think felt uh let down i think that people have really jumped on jumped on this 
Um, funnily enough, I think where you, you know you described the men's series as feeling a bit pointless by the end, certainly it did at a length of five tests. I mean, what is, yes. what is the point when two teams are clearly so mismatched? We now have the opposite with the women's Ashes, where well, exactly. one test feels um, you know deeply unfair given the quality yep. of that single game. One 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 shorter test, um, but yeah, hope, hopefully again, you know, perhaps we've seen it in terms of the county schedule and England actually taking on board what we need to do with red ball cricket and adjusting that in the county schedule hopefully the schedulers from the Ashes will take this on board look at the quality of what's happened in the women's Ashes and adjust accordingly in terms of the number of test matches that happen in the future From the archives and in this episode Toby is going to tell us the story of when the bed and breakfast and the swinger stepped up to the hockey now, YouTube recommendations are a very dangerous thing. I have a lot of ways of procrastinating in my life, and um, YouTube really tries to pile on the pressure sometimes. For a long while, I've been avoiding a video that's been popping up in that little sidebar called Alistair Cook and Jimmy Anderson, World Darts Championship Alexandra Palace. Then one afternoon recently, after watching, I don't know, probably some um, Jimmy Anderson swing bowling highlights, um, the autoplay function clicked in and here I was watching that video I'd been avoiding for so for so long. Um, so the story behind this video is that it's a it was part of a promotion for the 2014 World Darts Championship. It also happened to fall shortly after the announcement of the England squad for the 2015 World Cup. And thinking back to 2015, you may remember that that was the moment where Alistair Cook had just found out that he had not, that he had been relieved of the England one day captaincy. And on top of that, that he wouldn't actually be in the squad for the World Cup at all. Cook had been through a couple of horrible years with the bat in all formats. And if he hadn't been captain, it's highly likely that he would have been um, that he would have been dropped and it was shortly after the announcement of him being dropped from the one day side so that he could the selector said the official line said he could concentrate on test cricket that he and James Anderson stepped out onto the the Oki is that what the it's Oki. called stepped the up Oki. to the Oki I love this yeah. this term we're having to learn this a whole is, this new world preparation yeah, yeah preparation for the reverse sweat radio spin-off uh, dart series I think one thing it's interesting whenever you look back at any of these things with a sense of a few years perspective the idea that Alistair Cook was ever England ODI captain seems insane given the it way does. England's ODI could change. A different age, yes. But, but on the flip side, the idea of Alistair Cook being ever so out of form that we were going to give up on him potentially in the test side also seems absurd given what you know Sir Alistair went on went on to achieve. But it does. It does. It does feel like a different time. It was actually the moment. So Owen Morgan was vice captain at that point, and that was the moment that actually Owen Morgan stepped up to, to oh, take right. on the, the the one day. And I think he took on the twenty twenty captaincy around mm. um, around around then as well. Now, of course, none of this is talked about in the context of this in the context of this this video. This video is kind of all all smiles, but you do. I think it's important context because when you see Alistair Cook kind of coming out all smiles at the beginning of this video with his specially um, kind of monogram dart shirt on um you do have to have to remember that um he is he has just been bearing the brunt of some pretty um some pretty bad bad news i do wonder when you watch the video you see two very different approaches towards playing 
starts from from Anderson and from from Cook, uh, Anderson the swinger and Cook bed and breakfast. We'll we'll go into that a bit more in a, in a second. So Cook has um, a kind of characteristic opening opening batter's concentration on his face. You can see when he's throwing his darts that he's absolutely got a got a laser focus on where he wants the um, the darts to land. He's ignoring all of the noise um, around him. Whereas Anderson looks like he's kind of on a on a beach holiday in some kind of bar in Hawaii. He sort of saunters up. He sort of you know um, lazily tosses the the darts, barely looking at the board, looking as if he wants to kind of impress the girls as as as, as much as anything. Um, and I do. It's difficult not to think when you when you see this different difference of approach. Firstly, maybe there is something here about Cook's natural temperament as an opening batsman and his ability to really focus on particular moments. But maybe also he's trying to trying to prove a point in in some in mm. some small way on the on the stage on the hockey of the alley pally. I'm not sure I buy even with his uh, the impression he's giving off the idea of Jimmy Anderson ever being laissez-faire about something competitive. I I just generally struggle with the idea that these intense competitive sportsmen can ever truly turn it off. I feel like yeah. you would be playing, you know, Cluedo against them, um, and they would still be battling over everything. I, I think well, it's hard to switch off. It's a it's a really interesting question because um, in the interview after the the game the um, the interviewer asked them both about what the experience was like being up there playing playing darts um, and Anderson admits that his his legs and hands were shaking so much that when he f- threw the first kind of practice darts he you know kind of didn't really know where they were where they were going to go um cook says he was okay for the first few darts but then afterwards he just couldn't stop his legs um his legs shaking from from nerves um in the commentary they refer to um having had a chat with with anderson and cook before the match and apparently both of them said they felt more pressure than they you know would have ha- would have ha- felt walking on to um you know the first day of a, of a test match at, at Lords or something like that. So it is, as you say, interesting to see these players taken out of the arena of what they are incredibly skillful at, um, and kind of being brought, you know, to something that they haven't spent their whole career um, refining their skills at, but still having, you know, that kind of in a sense expectation to um, to perform that 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 sits with um, that sits with them as well. And I think, am I right? There is a crowd in the video as well. There is a crowd. I mean, yeah. it's a pretty sparse d- crowd because it is the beginning. I think it's it, this took place literally just before uh-huh. the World Championship actually starts. I think because actually Anderson and um, Cook then go on to actually commentate on some of the games within the World Championship. So you have the kind of early crowd from the World Championship. Because the darts crowds are sort of famously pretty lively, which I wondered if the other thing that contributes to the pressure is if this isn't really your main sport and you find yourself in front of a pretty rowdy and loud crowd, that might add to the... Uh, add to the wobbling legs. Well, particularly because darts is absolutely one of those things that looks quite easy. Mm. But for anyone who's ever played darts, certainly whenever I end up playing darts, you know, you think, oh, of course I'm going to hit a treble 20 here and you kind of can't even land it on the land it mm. on the board. Um, interestingly, the commentators are actually quite impressed by this, on the whole, by the skill that Cook and Anderson um, show. And Cook and Anderson both both talk about the fact that they um, do spend a little bit of time on, on tour playing, playing darts. Um, back to Cook, though. The other interesting thing is that um, this was an opportunity, inadvertently, I think, an opportunity for him to 
um, you know, do something in the public eye that wasn't cricket so soon after this quite, you know, big news of him being dropped from the from the captaincy and from the one uh, one day squad. After the match, he 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 jokes. So he scores a century on the on the darts board, and after the match, he jokes that he was glad to have scored um, the first century on TV for you know for a little while. So he's kind of prepared to sort of joke about that a bit. But that he then goes after the after the match and sits in the commentary box and commentates on some of the other darts, the professional darts darts matches. And it's quite an interesting interview because he you know talks very candidly about his disappointment of being you know of being dropped and kind of what it feels like to know that suddenly you know he was planning to be away for the winter and then suddenly his diary is just completely completely empty um and i suspect that he gives a level of candor to that interview that he probably wouldn't have given had a cricket journalist been sitting there asking him questions so often we see you know players kind of almost freeze up with all of the media training they have when they're facing familiar cricket journalists it's quite interesting to see suddenly cook kind of letting go in a um, in a slightly different probably way. Probably a lesson there for aspiring journalists or current journalists in that yes. you, you almost need to get to the player off um, naturally defensive territory, not the post-game press conference where the defences will be up, but a, a slightly different environment. It's that old interview technique of, you know, make it feel like you're just having a nice chat. Often the best, you know, content comes after the microphones have been mm. switched off and you just ask the casual question on the on the side. Um, so we started off by talking about bed and breakfast and, and, and the swinger. Now, Cook is bed and breakfast. I, I assume that in some way that's a pun on, like, Cook, chef, someone cooking breakfast but also and this is where you know reverse rep radio is a real education for all of us and bed and breakfast is a um, reference to the darts expression for when you throw a 20 a five and a one did you know that I definitely did not know. There that. you go. There's some there's some trivia for you. Um, Anderson's the 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 swinger. I mean, I assume that I I can't find any kind of darts terminology reference to the swing. I assume it, it's purely because he's a he's a swing bowler. Although when he does start start actually not being able to land the darts on the board, he is accused of accused of bowling wides. And one of the great kind of cringing joys of this video is the commentators trying to make puns darts related puns you know, related to, to, to cricket. There's this word, there's this kind of very pre-scripted line where one of the commentators says that Anderson's daughters would be at home asking, why doesn't daddy hit big scores like the other, <laughs> like the other guy, which um, felt like some, some poor producer had come up with that line and the commentators felt, felt obliged to, um, obliged to use it. Um, so we have this kind of watershed moment after, after Cook is dropped. Um, I wondered what difference this Ali Pally encounter might have had on Cook's uh, career. Well, let's look at Anderson first. His bowling average stayed steady either side of this darts encounter. Between 2014 and 2015, his average stayed at a, a shade of um, just over 22. Seven wicket hauls, I think, were his highlights during those two years. However... The impact on Cook of this encounter was palpable. So 2014, Anas Haribulis for him. In 2015, he turned his test form around. His average went up from 32 to 54. He scored three centuries, including that 263 um, against Pakistan. And um, maybe, I just have this hunch that maybe this moment, this darts moment at Adi Pali can be credited with rescuing the career of one of England's greatest ever batsmen. The review, and for this, the 149th episode of Reverse Swept Radio, we have been reading Who Only Cricket Know by David Woodhouse. It was published just a couple of months ago by Fairfield um, Books. 
David Woodhouse, this is the first time that we've uh, reviewed something, I think, by Woodhouse on this podcast. He's he's previously written on cricket, on football, and on horse racing. And this book um, is all about England's 1953-54 tour of the West Indies. It sets out the context to that tour, the story of the series itself, and the, the repercussions on, on the individuals involved, um, on cricket more broadly, and on the relationship between, between England and the um, West Indies too. Um, Andy, this book is clearly a, a passion project. It's 400 pages on a, on a particular subject. In the past, we've reviewed books that are passion projects, where, uh, which have struggled to convince us of, the, um, of, the, of, of how interesting their, their subjects are. How did you get on with 400 pages on uh, England's uh, 1953 tour of the West Indies? It, it was a page turner. I, I found it completely compelling. Um, I have to plead a bit of ignorance in that when um, I was introduced to this book, I wasn't aware of the significance of the series. And it's made clear that this series could compete with Bodyline in terms of mm. its level of controversy. The West Indian Clyde Walcott actually made the case that it was caused a greater storm than Bodyline. Um, but I think what makes this a much trickier story to tell is that Bodyline had that central tension, didn't it? There was, you know, in clues in the name. Um, while this series is a sort of odyssey of incidents, there's lots of different tensions, lots of different conflicts, each troublesome in their own way. I think it makes it a much trickier story to tell. Um, and it's a challenge that Woodhouse really rises to. Um, in terms of the the just extent of the research, I mean, what what, what did you make mm. of the extent to which that kind of quantity of material is managed? Well, I'm 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 the same as you in the sense that I was aware of the series. I was aware of some of the context around it. Um, I'm not aware of any other kind of. Um, I don't think there is the kind of canonical book that's been written, the definitive book that's been written about this series. You read about it, and obviously a lot of the autobiographies of the players who who played in it. One of the things that defines it is the fact that there is very little footage available. Of the series i mean i think there is probably less footage of this series than there was of the bodyline series 20 years 20 years earlier um the press reports are overwhelmingly partisan um and so what woodhouse has had to do is to you know go back look at all of the evidence that there is from you know from the press from eyewitness accounts but then also he's conducted some interviews um where he can with some of the key people who were um who were involved and kind of done this amazing work uh, you know piece of work of weaving all of these together to create a narrative that doesn't feel just like a patchwork of different pieces of evidence that feels like something um feels like something very kind of coherent and um uh, and cohesive actually and i think it's important to note how revolutionary this still is in cricket writing mm. so um david kiniston whose books we've, we've reviewed previously on the podcast in a recent review of this for the tls suggests that this is part of a new tradition of cricket writing that really takes history seriously as you said you know he's looking at multiple sources um you know in a certain passage he'll be looking at multiple photos and then weighing that against um journalism from the time different hypotheses are put forward for different events this is serious history writing being applied to cricket um, and it's gripping because it isn't simplified this is complex history told in all its complexity and I think that um, is re it, it's fascinating in a way that so many books dumbed out so many cricket books in yep. particular dumbed down and it actually made me wonder how much success um, a figure of Woodhouse's ability would have taking on other events in, in cricket history that we presumably a, actually yeah. overly simplified yep. 
Yep. And th- and this, as you say, the kind of interconnection between the macro, the massive kind of uh, sort of political um, historical context within which this um, series uh, sits versus the micro, what happens on the pitch, individual balls, individual umpiring decisions, the way that he's able to connect those two things is, is, is really remarkable. The other thing I think is significant about the approach here, which is quite unprecedented, is the balance that it takes between the West Indian and the English perspective. He... In, in a way, the book is structured in, in, in such a way that he takes the time, for instance, in the early part of the book to talk about the context from what, what you know, the, the state that England and the England team and the English kind of national mentality was in before the series, but then does the same thing from the West Indies um, perspective as well. And and that's really, because usually you get it from, from, you know, and again, the player's autobiography obviously come from one particular perspective, but his ability to balance those two, I think, is, is really significant. I completely agree. I don't think I've ever read a book that has done it, frankly. I think every book of, uh, cricket book that I've read of a series have always clearly been from the side of one or the other, or very much slanted, yep. much more much more one than the other. It's a serious work of broader political Mm. history as well. Um, And clearly one of the things that made this such a combustible series was timing. You had uh, a unique point in uh, Caribbean political history. You had a unique point in English cricketing history in terms of the relationship between the amateurs and the professionals. We have, and what's clear is that that put the England team in a pretty particular situation in terms of their role as, well, ambassadors. Mm. Well, there's all this, you know, kind of pressure that's being, you know, the English team is coming off the back of, you know, the Second World War, the austerity that comes out of that, but then also the coronation, the conquest of Everest and this sense of national kind of pride rebuilding. Um, I think it's beautifully encapsulated. And some some of the anecdotes that bring the book to, to life are um, so, so well chosen in terms of, again, illustrating through particular moments the broader situation in which the tour and the individuals sit. It's a wonderful anecdote of um, Fred Truman um, in the pre-tour briefing when they you know they realize that touring the West Indies with all of the racial tensions that exist and all the political tensions that exist is going to be tricky so they get a diplomat in to give what sounds like a rather unsuccessful briefing to the players about how they're to how they're to behave and 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 Truman in in recollecting this said and I'm not going to try and do my Fred Truman um, accent but he said um, so I upped and said with all due respect that if I was expected to be a member of Her Majesty's diplomatic service I should like to be paid like one and also (laughs) receive the privileges associated with such a position and he's absolutely right in the sense that these cricketers are being expected to be diplomats they're not just expected to go out there and play the game they are expected to go out there and basically sort of solve a political crisis to represent Mm. their nation in a much much broader way too and, and I think Woodhouse uh, gets to the, the core of the tension there when he says that the reality was that MCC's cricketing and diplomatic missions were always in tension. Mm. It would prove impossible to reconcile playing hard with playing fair. And it, it's inevitable when you read any book of uh, history or sporting history that you make comparisons to the present day. And, and I was pondering this fact that I, I guess it's right to say that players today are still ambassadors. You know, the way mm. that Joe Root and co behave in Australia Australia does in some way reflect more broadly on the country but it feels still a long way removed from this I think there's now obviously an understanding that a cricket team goes to a country to win and it does so by playing the game hard and it, it feels that actually that understanding was was far less clear at this point and and demonstrated by and we well, we should talk about about Len Hutton who is one of the kind of key is, is the sort of central figure in a way of the 
um, of the book as the England captain and the talismanic um, in England batsman. But it's um, epitomised perhaps perhaps this tension by in the in one of the later tests in the series he comes off the off off the pitch after you know hard graft batting in the middle bouncer after bouncer kind of holding up the England batting. And there's a whole crowd of people around. Well, obviously conflicting accounts of exactly what happened, but a whole crowd of people mm. around him. Someone reaches out to congratulate him and shakes his hand, and he's in this kind of sort of tunnel vision, I suppose, after coming off the off the pitch. I um, mean, he doesn't return the, the shaken hand, and it turns out that the um, uh, that 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 person is I can't remember exactly who it is, but a local dignitary, the local mayor, or something like that, and it turns into this massive political in, mm. you know uh, political incident that he's refused to supposedly refused to shake this person's hand, and you suddenly think, here is Hutton, literally batting for his mm. life in many ways with these bouncers coming at his head, and then two seconds later he's expected to be doing the right thing mm. diplomatically, having come off the you know, having come off the pitch. I think the whole series has a sense of how things can spiral when things mm. start to go wrong. And that incident is a great example of it. Lots of things that in a more normal or more peaceful context might have been played down once relations between the teams, once relationships between the teams and the crowd were as negative as they are, as they were, these things start to take on a more negative bent. I, I think Hutton, if there is a hero of this book, is the hero. Um, it's interesting because uh, Woodhouse is not one for Cardus-like hagiography. He's yes. very balanced, he's very measured, I think, as we set out. But it is hard not to relate to Hutton's, uh, or as much admire Hutton's struggles, his ability to perform at the level he did while being ruthlessly undermined by his own cricketing board. By his board. own team, yep. Yeah. Yep. It, it by was... his team and his cricketing board, you know, and those moments where, for instance, after, I think it's in the second or third test where the team kind of go into open revolt at Hutton's tactics around, you know, around kind of slow slow batting and come to him and say, Captain, we need to, you know, change our change our tactics. And he has the presence of mind to say, yeah, you might be might be right. I think they then up their run rate from, you know, an average of one point oh two runs and over to one point eight nine runs and over or something like something like that. But you're right, the kind of figure of Hutton at the centre of this book is 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 really amazing. And he does talk Woodhouse does talk to um, Hutton's son about this as well. And you get the sense of the pressure Hutton was under as the kind of test case for professionals captaining England because this is the other thing on Hutton's shoulder not only is he representing England in the West Indies amongst the whole racial and kind of colonial debate but he is also the person who is expected to prove that a professional can captain England at test cricket and Mm. if Hutton fails he knows that it'll be used to reinforce all of the class assumptions not just in cricket but in wider society around the idea that you know the working class don't have the ability to lead other people the fact that it does require someone from the aristocracy who's an amateur player to actually command respect within Mm. this context and to lead you know to lead a group of men. I think we obviously look at this through the context of a sporting team and a sporting governing body, but I imagine this this would be familiar for people who look at organisations and the way they change that sometimes you need someone who is a trailblazer who does mm. things differently. And unfortunately, that person often suffers, you know, and, and, and Hutton had to, uh, he was that little bit ahead of his time and he was appointed and then ruthlessly undermined by a structure that wasn't quite ready for him and I imagine what we're seeing is is actually a a story true to many organizations that are struggling with that with that transition so I was um I had to spend a little bit of time in in hospital uh last week don't worry 
nothing serious although my my cricketing season is over you will all be devastated to um to hear i was recovering from a, a knee operation and some general anesthetic and as i lay feeling quite groggy as you do after having a general anesthetic i was glad to have on my kindle this book and not really feeling up to much i was there glued to the central part of the of the book which is the account of each of the five five tests and i have rarely found write-ups of historical test matches i don't think i've ever found write-ups of historical test matches as page turning um as these was and the fact that i was lying there in my hospital bed unable to put it down i think is as good an indication of mm. um of any of the kind of power of the storytelling in this in this book we, we regularly at the end of this feature will tell you to go and get this whatever we've read from you know your your good local bookshop mm. but i think i'd go a little bit further in this case which is that we read lots of books that we enjoy but i really think this is a book that matters it's a book that matters in terms of what it says about cricket what it says about the politics and history of the time and also what it says about writing about cricket you know there is uh, a realm of possibilities here that i hope will inspire a uh, plenty more woodhouse imitators so at the uh, beginning of February, I think it's going to be hard for any other book to to, to top that um, this year. Um, that was the 149th episode of Reverse Swept Radio. Uh, we will see you in a few weeks' time.